You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. Hi, this is Nick Schwader, and you're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm guest hosting this week for your regular host, Brittany Martin. Now, this week we are talking all things Rails 6. We're recording in March 2019, and the uh, release of the next major version is coming out next month. So we're very pleased to have with us, uh, you might know him from his wonderful talks, uh, RailsConf and Ruby Kaigi. We're also grateful for his 43 contributions to Rails Core. Edward Sheen, thank you for coming to the program. Hello, Nick. Thanks a lot for having me. And I, I should also mention that uh, you are a senior, uh, uh, what was it, Se- senior production? Yep. Senior production engineering at engineer. Shopify. Yeah. Absolutely. So many, so many things, so little time. So <laughs> uh, so today we're talking about uh, all things Rails 6 with, with Rails Comp coming up and the major release uh, coming out to the world. It's quite an exciting time. I think, was Rails 5, was it uh, three, four years ago now? Um, I, uh, let me remember. It, uh, my memory is lacking me right now. But I think, yeah, Rails 3 was around uh, four, four, four years ago, if I remember um, correctly, yeah. And, and I'd say that, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased to see that we'll talk a little later about the features. We're going to start with the migration. But it does look like we have a bundle of uh, exciting features still coming out uh, with such a mature framework. Yeah, you know, it's it's crazy because DHH was recently saying that this release is one of the biggest releases in the history of the framework. There is so many things new. Uh, it's hard to keep track of everything. Absolutely. So to start off, I'd like to talk because, you know, speaking and, and maybe our listeners because I can identify with this, you know, I work for a, a smaller company that, you know, we have a monolith and, and we deal with our upgrades in a particular way, but the stakes aren't that high, right? Mm-hmm. And then you work for uh, a company where the stakes are just about as high as they can get. And I'd like you to talk through kind of your approaches historically with migrations and currently with migrations and some of the um processes you you all have developed and and some of the uh, pain points you found and and just kind of hear that story sounds good yeah um so i think i will start by saying that around four years ago so when i started shopify was in 2015 we already had this idea of pointing our application on the head of rails uh, on the head of rails we realized that it will be a huge benefit for us uh to be living on the edge. Uh, it will be a huge benefit for us, but it will also be a huge benefit for the community. But we knew that uh, being on a head of rail will take a lot, lot of work. Uh, a simple upgrade on our application was taking us months. And the largest one we did, like it was the 4.2 to 5.0 upgrade, uh, took one year. So we realized that without tooling, without a process, uh, we will not be able to achieve this goal of being on the head of rail. And I'm very excited to say that today we are achieved this, this, uh, this milestone. And it was a huge, huge, huge milestone for us, a massive success. And uh, hopefully I will be able to, um, to talk about it more and inspire people to, to do the same. That, that's amazing. So, so right now, um... It, it, uh, you can say that your application is as new as you can get with as far as Rails releases, um, GitHub pointing to to master at this point. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, we have a bot that automatically takes care of upgrading our gemfile.locks on a uh, weekly basis. So I think every week there is around 100 commits uh, that get merged upstream. Um, so it makes things very easy for us to find bugs if there is any in our application because of the change made or regression because sometimes you know things happen and people merge regression. But where we it, it, because of our massive test suites, we have more than 100,000 tests. Uh, it makes things a bit easier for us to detect uh, if there was a regression made upstream. And I, I've got to say, just selfishly, as someone whose career relies on the Rails ecosystem, that, that's really fantastic, right? Because um, Rails has its own test suite, but having an actual critical deployed production application that sits on Rails running its 100,000 tests every single week um, for its use uh, against it ensures that it's even more stable, right? So if something mm -hmm. is introduced on the Rails end that is a problem on the Rails end, you're probably some of the first people to be able to see that. Uh, yeah, we, we, with GitHub and maybe few other applications, yeah, we are one of one of one of the people that are able to detect this, and uh, it was already a success. We 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 found few few issues that we were able to fix. Uh, so these, those kind of issues won't uh, make their way to the final release, making it safer for everyone else to upgrade. And uh, one other cool thing is that Rafael, so Rafael Franca, which uh, leads our team. Um, usually takes care of pointing Shopify on a specific branch of Rails whenever he has a doubt on whether a change is going to make a regression or problem. And uh, before making the call whether it's fine to merge, we point our application, run our test suite, and see if there is issue. That's awesome. So that kind of leads me into the next part. So just kind of thinking from, from my world and, and upgrading uh, major versions. You must be quite active on dependency management with uh, what gems you rely on on your gem file, right? Because one of the biggest things that I find when, you know, especially on a major upgrade, mm -hmm. is if there's a gem that's not particularly well maintained or, or you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, I feel like that's more likely to get hit than my code, right? Um, yeah. So be, being on Rails 6 and being on Master, like, uh, I'll be honest, so our current approach, because we're a very small B2B SaaS company, is mm -hmm. migrate within three to six months of Rails 6 coming out so that any of our dependencies mm -hmm. might have a chance to upgrade. But we're we're at a different end of the spectrum, right? Um, mm. So how, how do you kind of handle, or is that a problem at this point, or are you able to keep your dependencies quite low? Yeah, so there is our dependencies, the one that we control, uh, the one that we have merge access to. And for this one, it's uh, not usually a problem because we take care of uh, upgrading them. And we have actually a, um, uh, a good practice of having our gems uh, test themselves on the head of Rails. So basically, we have multiple gem files inside a gems, and we test the gem uh, on different version of Rails or active support or whatever dependencies the gems uh, depends to on. Um, but the problem was mainly on dependencies that we don't control. And the main pain point for that upgrade was actually to um, remove the upper bound constraints on dependencies. So for example, uh, there is dependencies that have a upper bound constraint on action pack or action support or whatever other component of Rails. But these upper bound constraints doesn't really uh, like it's not really necessary. There is no, not a real reason to have these upper bound constraint and it blocks us. 
because of course bundlers cannot resolve dependencies. Uh, so what we decided to do is to ask the community to remove the upper bound constraint on their dependencies uh, and just have a lower bound constraint. Most of the people accepted, and I think by doing that, it will help a lot of people upgrade their app as well. Okay, so, um, and then kind of moving back away from dependencies, I don't remember if it was Shopify or one of the other larger uh Rails applications that had this engineering post, and and I think I shared it with you in in an email. So it may have been Shopify talking mm -hmm. about um, making that move. So I, it may be different now that you're you're pointing to master. It's probably a different world. But was it Shopify that when when going from four to five mm -hmm. had a process that kind of revolved around doing the upgrade alongside feature development? So I think maybe there was a Rubocop um, bot that was involved. Does that make it? You know uh, yeah, uh, so yeah, we definitely have these engineering posts. I know what you're talking about, uh, uh, about the RuboCop cop, I'm not too sure. Uh, what I know about RuboCop is that we basically have some um, code in our application and we do if uh, Shopify.RailsNext, which means are we running on the uh, version of RailsNext? Because we you know we have the dual boot process. Uh, we have one CI that runs the current version that we run in production. And we have another CI that runs Shopify on the uh, next version of Rails. And because there sometimes we have code that are not compatible between two versions of Rails, we need to have conditions uh, like such as if Rails next, do that, otherwise do that. And about the RuboCop cop you're talking about is just a way for us to clean up all these conditions once we're fully uh, on the next version of Rails. See, I think I think that's quite clever, right? Because, uh, you know, uh, smaller operations, so, you know, my experience with four to five was very much, you know, if you think a few person team with a small amount of development, it was very much the, the painful path of having a branch, mm. right? For exactly. Yeah. And then you're and then you're having to try and rebase or merge in all the new features while still staying up to snuff. But with yeah. this, you could have somebody go through your code base and say, Okay, we've identified X breakpoint or deprecation, do if else statements for if Rails current or Rails next or Rails four or Rails five, yeah, whatever. And then you, but if you use that same exact syntax through your entire application, in theory, if your CI is green, you can run the cop, clean it out, and use the power of the cop to just know that you're ready to go and develop while writing features. Uh, yeah, exactly. So we j just just to be clear, we we run the cop to autocorrect all these conditionals at the very end of the upgrade process. Um, but the fact that we don't develop uh, the um, or we don't do the Rails Next um, upgrade in a single branch makes it easy because of merge conflicts, and that way we also avoid people adding new code or writing new code that is not compatible with the next version of Rails. Um, so yeah, we we shared our process with dual booting, uh, and I think dual booting is now a common practice in the um, Ruby ecosystem. Uh, the problem was the, the when, when you were dual booting. So if for for our audience that doesn't know what is dual booting, dual booting is a way to boot your application with a different set of dependencies. Um, so basically, you have the gem file, then you have the gem file.lock, That's the usual bundler thing, and then you have the gem file next.lock, which have another set of dependencies. It's basically a snapshot. Um, the problem with this approach is that when you try to uh, update a gem, so when you do bundle update, uh, whatever gems, it only updates the gem file lock. So you need a way to make sure that the gem file next.log has 
the change as well. And there was no great way to do that. So we decided to build a tool called BootBoot. Boot. It's actually a bundler, bundler plugin. So bundler plugin is a, is a feature that is not commonly used, um, but uh, it's very helpful. And it allows us to make sure that whenever a developer tries to update a gem or install a new gem, that it gets reflected in uh, both gem file and they are always in sync. Well, that, that, that's amazing because I'd heard about the gemfile.lock and the gemfile.next.lock, but I hadn't heard of BootBoot. Boot. Now, is that a, a uh, so it's a bundler plugin. So if users were mm -hmm. looking that up, we'll put it in the show notes. But would you yeah. find that under uh, Shopify slash BootBoot? BootBoot, Boot. exactly. Yeah, correct. No, I'm guessing no underscore. I'm, I'm typing. It's not very professional. I am typing this in mid-podcast. <laughs> Yes, I found it. Shopify slash boot boot. That'll be in the show notes, and I will be looking at it after the podcast. Awesome. Um, and another one to shine on for while we're talking about tools that you offer in this area, um, you've led, and I saw on your GitHub profile, a deprecation toolkit as well, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so our vision, like uh, when I was talking that we wanted to have Shopify run on the edge of Rails, that was one of our main goal, but we also wanted to have all our application at Shopify be up to date on dependencies. Uh, so it's it's quite a, a difficult challenge, um, but we wanted to make it easy for application to upgrade. We wanted to uh, have people be confident when they upgrade um, important dependencies. And so we wanted to, to create a toolkit. Um, so the toolkit is not created yet. It's not open source. But we built a lot of tools that we want to assemble inside a toolkit. And the deprecation toolkit you are talking about, even though both have the, uh, in common the toolkit suffix, uh, the deprecation toolkit allows you to keep track of deprecations in your system. So it's used a sheet list approach uh, by basically recording all the existing deprecation you have in your system. And it will make sure that no developers will add new ones either uh, um, either, um, sorry, by mistakes or um, by, on, on purpose. Uh, so it will raise a big flag on CI saying, you added deprecation, please fix the deprecation or recording the whitelist. But of course, we encourage people to fix deprecation. That's awesome. And I'll be sure that we include that in the show notes, both Boot Boot and Deprecation Toolkit. And now we're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsor. There is a better version of the internet and it's already here. It's a decentralized one, free from data breaches and privacy abuses where you own your own identity and data. Blockstack is an open computing protocol that makes it easy for developers to build applications that guarantee their users' digital rights. Blockstack provides a stack of important layers developers can use so that the people who use their applications truly own their own data, own their identity, and even their content connections. These decentralized applications are more secure than traditional options, and with Blockstack, you make no sacrifices on performance or scalability. Blockstack is open source, free, and Blockstack community has built libraries to make things easy for the Ruby community to get started. Ruby developers can get started in about 45 minutes with a zero to DAP tutorial, which will take you through building your first decentralized application and give you a good feel for the possibilities and benefits of the protocol. Developers can even get paid to build better applications using Blockstack via the App Mining Program, which pays out $100,000 a month directly to developers. The Blockstack ecosystem is hard at work providing better, safer, user-owned applications to people that need them now more than ever. Learn more and get started at blockstack.org slash Ruby on Rails. Link is in the show notes. Thank you to Blockstack for sponsoring the Ruby on Rails podcast. 
All right, and we are back. So, um, Edward, if it's all right with you, I was thinking, uh, unless there's anything you want to talk about migrations, maybe we talk Rail 6 features for a bit, or is there anything else that I missed on? No, let's dive in the new uh, features in Rail 6. There are so many that it's going to be hard to keep track of everything, but we'll, we'll do our best. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, just so the listener knows, there is no formal process here. You can look at, uh, you know, uh, the, the formal publications. Uh, Rails guides are coming together, github.com slash Rails Rails. Um, but I just have some notes. Edward, I think you have some notes, and we might mm -hmm. just kind of talk through them uh, until we run out of time. Um, so uh, is there one on your list that you want to, to kind of kick off or, or anything that you're excited about or that you had to kind of wrangle with with the upgrade? Uh, sure. So um, I think we, we, we will need to highlight, you know, the main features uh, because, again, there is so many. Uh, but maybe one of the first features we can talk about is the uh, multiple database connection switching that the amazing Alin worked on. Uh, it's, it's, it's really cool. You know, it will make things way easier for application that needs uh, multiple database connection simultaneously. So now you have a way, like if you have an active record model, you have a way to declare inside the class that this model is going to be connected to whatever database you want, either for performance or isolation purposes. And then inside your application, you will be able to have a way to, uh, to tell uh, with which connection you want to execute uh, some queries. Uh, so let's say, I don't know, you, let's say if you have a database, a read-only database, and you want to, uh, to, to query on this, you will have a very simple way to, to, to achieve that. And on top of that, um, Rails added a new middleware that will allow to automatically switch uh, the database based on the request. So the, um, the default logic is to, um, is to use the read-only database whenever there is a, a get uh, or head request. So it will switch the database to the read-only database. And if there is uh, um, like a post or put or patch request, then it will read the prime, it will use the primary database. And of course, those rules can be, uh, can be configured and uh, there is a lot of flexibility in that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and with these, with the multiple databases, so I'll just speak from, again, the smaller app side of things. Primarily, I ran into this, not really so much with performance, but, um, Sometimes we would have clients that want to migrate data into our application, right? Mm -hmm. And occasionally it'd be supplied in different formats. So it might be CSV, but occasionally it would be an actual real, say, Postgres database. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways that we made that work is we would manually connect to their database or whatever type of database they had. But while having a, an instance of our application live and kind of iterating through their data, sanitizing it, you know, uh, working through it, deduplicating and doing mm -hmm. all that work. And I remember it being quite a quite an effort to manually write everything out in every single class that was trying to talk to that database. But it seems that uh, with Eileen's work here, which you know, you'd think would just help uh, enterprise scale applications, but even on this level make it very, very slick to have different model objects and active record talking in different ways to different databases, right? Yeah, I agree. Like having these out of the box will make things ways uh, easier for people. Like I, I'm pretty sure everyone has their own implementation of multiple database, uh, and we do as well as Shopify. And uh, hopefully, we'll be able to use the work that Eileen and Ganon on our side made. Uh, it will clean up so many uh, legacy code we have. 
Yeah, absolutely. And what what I really like about this is when she was uh, she is writing examples of use cases and like her use case. I think she's talking about having, uh, like you said, read going to one place, write going to another place, performance and and on the database level. But even for my small uh, business application, there's there we had to figure out how to talk to multiple databases. Mm-hmm. And this just makes it out of the box. Less, you know, Rails, right? Convention over configuration made it made it really straightforward uh, to to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's an exciting feature that will will all levels of Rails applications will get to use. Um, one that I think is was quite a big name from early on was Action Mailbox. <laughs> Action Mailbox, a new framework. This one sounds really cool. Yes, and. Um, let me let, let me pull that open. So, we've all worked with any any level of Rails work. We've we've all used um, mailers, right? So even mm-hmm. even from the tiniest application, you're spinning up I, Rails generators supports it, right? You're generating new mailers. You're sending out email. Um, but I'll, I will say that right now uh, with my work. I generally don't don't do a lot with inbound. Now there were Rails utilities before where you could kind of make it work, but I mm-hmm. think this makes it a first class citizen, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I was kind of confused on why Action Mailbox will be useful because I, I didn't have any use case in mind, and then I actually realized that I use Action Mailbox every day on GitHub, like because when you get a notification email by from GitHub because someone commented on your pull request or something like that, and then I answer it directly in the email, and magically it creates a comment on my behalf on GitHub. Well, this is inbound email processing, and this is why it's super useful. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when, whenever you see a situation where it's saying reply to this email or interact via email, that, that integration is something that can point straight to Action Mailbox. And building that out on our own probably would have been a bit painful. And, a, and a, GitHub may have been doing that before this came out, right? So that's mm-hmm. quite quite heavy. You know, I, I knew I know that uh, we had a way in Rails to uh, process inbound mails with Action Mailer, but uh, it wasn't really nice to, to use. Uh, and the fact that Action Mailbox comes out of the box with uh, popular in, inbound email processing platforms like um, Amazon SES or Mailgun or SendGrid make it like super super easy to process emails. Yeah, absolutely, and, and, it, and it, it structurally puts it together. So if you're even an early days Rails developer and you have a certain uh, kind of set of mental concepts for how you handle code and inbound outbound, it kind of reflects that. And just just uh, so our listeners know. Uh, it supports the ingresses for Amazon SES, Mailgun, Mandrill, Postmark, and the one that I use the most, SendGrid. So um, when you think about that, that's no small effort to be able to support all of them. Um, and yeah, Action Mailbox is something that I know we're looking forward to using. Um, but mm-hmm. it's, it's just one of those things we'll kind of spin up a, an MVP, see how it works, and extend it from there. Yeah, I think like whenever I will have an application I want to build in mind, I will definitely keep in mind this Action Mailbox uh, framework. I'm not too sure how we are going to be able to use it inside our Shopify application because I don't have much use case of how we can use that, uh, but it will be super useful for a new app or apps that relies a lot of e- on emails. 
Definitely. It's one of those things that kind of makes sense. Like if you look, you have, we, we've had a action cable since Rails 5. So if you have a situation that calls for action cable, the support's there. And I think inbound email is at least as important if you ever have an application where, gosh, I really wish somebody could respond to this email and have it handled really well. <laughs> right? I agree. I yeah, mean, absolutely. I mean, we can whip in Twilio and do that with SMS already, right? So like maybe, you know, uh, handle it with that. Um, so I guess you can't, there's there's two features that have action at the front, right? So the other framework being, it is action tech. I always get action and active mixed up, but I me, me too. <laughs> action text, right? Yeah, I mix, two, I mix the two all the time as well. <laughs> so action tech, so I remember just as a background, if you're a Rails developer and you're using tricks um, from Basecamp, this kind of is, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to take the magic of that, but mix it also in with active storage, image handling, kind of brings everything together into a real strong, rich text um, editor capability, right? Yeah, so I've never used tricks myself. Um... And uh, I'm not super aware of action text, um, but uh, I just know the basics. And I, th I think it's just an integration from the tricks editor made by Basecamp. And it will allow you to have a way to define in your active record model uh, a new method called has rich text. And then you pass in an argument, the, the column where um, the data will be stored in. And uh, whenever you, in a view, you will be able to call form that uh, text and then pass in the column name. And this will automatically create a rich text object that has few um, convenience method uh, to deal with, um, with rich text. See, I, and I find it quite exciting because I remember, I don't know if you saw DHH's or David's uh, demo mm -hmm. months and months ago, but I know that, so I did use tricks and essentially it's WYSIWYG editor, right? So you mm -hmm. just, uh, you have your text column on your database, but as far as the view, it allows you to be able to make things bold, italicized, underlined, and it'll do all the HTML tag sanitizing behind the scenes and rendering. Um, but mm. kind of taking this to the next level where if you have active storage hooked up, and you can drag and drop. So again, JavaScript and Rails kind of coming together. You can drag in your your images uh, wherever you want in your text when you're doing your editing, and it will show. Uh, that's you know I haven't looked at the source code for that, but that I found quite interesting. Where you can just rely on your active storage implementation to store your photo files. Yeah. Um, as well as doing all the tags with HTML for for your WYSIWYG. I was uh, I, I was looking at the uh, YouTube video that you you mentioned from DHH, and I was really impressed on how it is. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's one of those things that um, I'll say from the first day I started using Rails to now, there are elements that seem like magic, and I like the term Rails magic. <laughs> and once in a while, I will figure it out, and I'll know. Oh yeah, I know how this works. You know, like these these metaprogramming uh, elements of Ruby that make these things dynamic. But once in a while, I'll be like, gosh, I guess it just works. And I don't need to know why, right? Like, it just works. That's true. One of, you know, one of the, the, the thing I like when there is a new framework that gets implemented in Rails, such as Action Mailbox or Action Text, it's that it's so new that the, the code is not that large. And understanding how it works is actually way easier than understanding from scratch a framework that exists since multiple years, such as like Action View, for example, uh, where there is a lot, a lot of code going on. But when you 
if you want to start understanding from the beginning how it works, it's actually way easier. Yeah, that's totally right, right? Like I'm I'm no expert, but I will say when active storage came out, I really had a lot of fun looking at the commits step by step mm -hmm. and seeing how that came together cuz for me it's such a massive undertaking, but seeing how it was put together one commit at a time and yeah, I'd recommend that to the listeners, you know. Uh, some of these new frameworks have a look at the commit history and have a bit of fun. Exactly, yeah. So we've got we've so we've got action mailbox, action text, we've got multiple database support. Um, and another thing, uh, to some extent, Rail 6 will have uh, test parallelization. Um, I'm I'm sure that's something that you would use at Shopify, either distributed machines or maybe per mm -hmm. machine would be something you'd quite rely on. Yeah, uh, so I don't think we'll be able to use that feature because uh, the way we uh, parallelize tests on our CI is a bit more different. We actually distribute tests. Uh, I don't want to talk too much on our implementation and just focusing on parallel testing, but I think it will make uh, things way easier for people to test uh, to, to run your tests in parallel. Uh, so the uh, default is to uh, fork the process instead of using thread. Uh, the main reason was basically because uh, usually applications have a single database and it's uh, faster to use uh, forked process rather than thread. But you have a way if you want to run thread to configure parallel testing. Yeah, completely. And I'd, I'd say for for us uh, with with my so smaller side application, we distribute um, manually. I guess is the best way to put it. So we have RSpec one, RSpec two. Um, mm -hmm. And then we, we roughly try and keep the same amount of test load, but just between two machines. I think I remember um, hearing, you know, some people go a lot more machines, but so we just run yeah. two runners at once with explicitly different sets of tests per, per uh, CI run. Um, and then we, do, so we don't do it parallel on the machine, but yeah. I think yeah. that'd be something we'd like to do eventually. Yeah, exactly. We, we have almost the same approach. Uh, we have more uh, workers. We have around 200 workers, but we have almost the same approach as you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and I will say for the listeners, so we had a little talk before the podcast. At the moment, um, I was reading through the pull request. Parallel test currently is mini test support. It seemed exclusively. I think there is capacity for, um, I don't think the word isn't adapter, but for capacity for this to come over to our spec. So uh, I will say that if, if that capacity does come to our spec, I will be jumping at it immediately and see, that, see what we can do. That will be cool if one of our listeners will be able to implement parallel testing for our spec, yeah. Yes, and email me and I'll give you a star and a share on Twitter and, and, and all <laughs> that. Um, so, but that, but no, that is exciting. There's the parallel test gem, but it's really fun when something that I think is major to Rails makes it to the Rails core. Um, and, and I see that trend, right? So it's, it's, it's interesting, right? Because 5.0, you know, I remember the big thing people were talking about was action cable, but I would almost say I was more excited with active storage when it came out <laughs> in 5.1 or 5.2. Um, but it seems that we have a, a, a few on here in the next one, I would think about, and I'm not an expert in this area, but I would say Webpacker by default. Uh, yeah, Webpacker by default. Uh, I, I, I'm gonna be honest. I don't know much about um, the front-end uh, technology world. Um, I, I wasn't too excited about Webpacker, but uh, because I, I don't really use Webpacker, or nor do I understand really what it does. 
but it seems like the community was super excited about it. Um, so I think after that talk, I'm going to to learn a bit more on what it is and what does it do actually. Yeah, I have to agree. So I, I can say for my day to day, I'm primarily back end, even though I say full stack, right? Like I can put stuff in action to mm. um, And generally with compiling assets, I've always been used to, you know, your rake assets pre-compile or compile um, mm -hmm. sprockets and then my CSS and my JavaScript and my images kind of being compiled. But as I understand it with this, this allows you, if you wish, to kind of extract your JS into the packs under Webpack, um, mm -hmm. and it, and if you want, you can't. So it's it's kind of giving people a choice at this, which is you know Rails is big on convention, but I think this is a little bit more towards configuration. So the default will be JavaScript in Webpack. Oh. Okay, I see. So uh, we are still using Sprockets for CSS and other assets, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm. So, but but. I, as I understand, and people can write in and correct me if I'm wrong, but Webpacker can also be used for uh, with Yarn for your uh, CSS and images, etc. Um, so I think the default, if you did Rails new as of Rails six, mm -hmm. would be Webpacker for JavaScript, um, and then your sprockets for your CSS and images. But if you really liked one or the other, you could either go completely sprockets like I'm currently doing. I or, see. You, yeah. or you could go completely webpacker, but I, Makes I will sense. say, I'm I'm on a similar boat as you here because I do have a feeling that I need to have more understanding with the world of webpack and yarn and these assets and and, and things with JavaScript, um, and maybe this is keeping us up with that. So yeah, yeah, it's, you know, I I I mainly work on uh, infrastructure and backend uh, code, uh, so I I don't often. Even like uh, running a, a web page uh, or running the Rails server, I, I rarely do that. Um, so, but it's interesting to to hear about all these new um, these new features or, and new um, and new tools that are by default on Rails. Um, yeah, and it, it it's interesting because we're talking about it as my day to day is maintaining a, a six year old application, um, and you're maintaining a, a one of the biggest, you know, working on one of the biggest in the world, but we, it's also nice to keep an eye on what the conventions are doing for new mm -hmm. ground up applications. You know, we may not migrate over to that. We may stay the way we are. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting to see. So those are, so those are all the big ones. I have a couple um, smaller uh, Rails 6 changes that I thought were interesting. Do you have any, any others uh, on your list? So I have one thing that is actually uh, super beneficial for a large application like us. Uh, it's actually the um, improvement performance made on Action View Resolver. Uh, so I had to dig on that recently, so I have a bit of context on this. So basically, when you have a large application um, like us and you componentize uh, your application, like uh, the, the, I think you talked with Jose a couple of weeks ago about uh, componentization and how we do that in our application. Um, we have many view passes. So we have a lot of component folder and in, inside each component folder, you, we have view folders. Usually in a regular Rails application, you have only a single view folder that contains all your view. You have maybe subfolders, but that's pretty much it. And so uh, the 
old way of uh, resolving um, resolving the the the, the pass with like the Rails um, optimized file system resolver was too slow for us because we had too many view passes like around 436. And the, the logic we, the Rails was doing was too slow because it was doing too many syscalls by uh, doing like a, a glob and then trying to figure out um, whether this was a folder or whether this was a file and et cetera, et cetera. And so we implemented our own resolver that we did not uh, open source it. it was just inside our application and it, it, it makes things way faster. But with Rails 6, they uh, made some performance improvement on the file uh, system, uh, fi um, optimized file system resolvers to not make that much syscalls and I did a benchmark between our implementation and the new implementation of Rails, and we are actually almost equal. So we were able to fire our implementation to use the one upstream. And uh, in terms of, um, of gain, we, we, we're, we are talking about, I don't know, maybe 300 milliseconds per, per request. Wow, that yeah. is crazy. Yeah. Gosh, so that's, that's, a, that's a major uh, change as well. And, and we haven't talked about that much. Uh, this podcast about you know benchmarking and these improvements that we that we can expect mm -hmm. um, yeah. and I'll be honest there's probably uh, dozens of small ones in rail 6 in general that that are gonna improve our application so when we're talking to people about why they should upgrade you kind of get a lot of a lot of freebies as well but for that that's massive for, for you guys that's really good absolutely yeah yeah um, so okay so kind of moving towards the, the late stage here I have a couple smaller ones that might that I thought worth doing maybe even five seconds on. Um, mm -hmm. So I remember seeing a pull request and discussion for a couple of years around action cable testing. So mm. I don't remember. I'm so sorry for the original user because I actually talked in this pull request a fair bit and I don't remember his name. But worked very, very hard and we finally got in for L6 about action cable testing on the action cable level. So connection channels and broadcast is going to be part of Rails core. Um, so there's that. Uh, and I'm just gonna go a little quicker here if that's all right. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I just, if folks wanna write a test on the action cable level instead of on the feature level, which I, I love feature tests, but it's nice to get those smaller ones. Um, another one that I think's quite handy is filtering sensitive parameters. I don't know if you saw about that. Uh, was it when you inspect the active record model so it can filter uh, sensitive columns? Yeah, so it's active record based filter attributes. Mm. So it's, it's an interesting use case here because we, we, we filter a lot of things that could be sensitive, mm -hmm. but once in a while you might have a column that doesn't match the normal sensitive column that you want to filter from your logs, right? Exactly, um, yeah. So I think if for, for those of us, which I think is all of us, who really care about user privacy and protection and security, yeah, it's, it's such a little feature, but it's really handy where I think uh, an early stage junior Rails developer could start filtering, filtering out columns really easily. Um, it, it, yeah, it, especially with uh, European GDPR law, I yes. think. <laughs> oh yes, it's a, it's a big thing right now to filter sensitive data. Um, so I'm I'm glad they made that easy on, on Rails. Absolutely, and you know I have a list here. I'm not going to go through all of them, so I'll put a link in the show notes 
with all the little ones. I won't say what they are, but like array extract, relation pick, all these little things, private method delegation. Mm -hmm. um, but the one that I'll say something about uh, is, so the moment that Rails credentials came out, and I think 5.2 or 5.1, we have tried to use it uh, as much as we could in everything we had. And I have mm -hmm. personally really enjoyed using Rails credentials um, because it just makes everything yeah. really easy, right? From the command line, I can just get into credentials. Um, yeah, so I agree. Uh, so I recently 6, built an application where I, will, I, I probably to won't use, use this immediately, but I would on new apps. It allows per environment Rails credentials, so development, staging, production as well. It's really cool to have that. Yeah, I had to uh, work around this uh, on Rails 5, an application that was running on Rails 5. It was a small application, and I had to work around this issue, and I'm super happy that it's finally a feature on Rails 6. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I definitely did the, like, Rails application credentials, and then, like, I would type in the name of the environment that I did manually, and mm -hmm. then I'd do, like, Twilio account ID or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then um, now that they're going to just allow it to where when you swap environments, you can just, if it's, because I would, I would literally have 12 keys that were copied over the name, <laughs> but yeah. then I'd have to change the name of the environment. So, yeah, I think, so before Rails credentials, there was that brief period of Rails secrets, and then they changed it to Rails credentials. And before that, you know, we were yeah. using Figaro mm -hmm. and but I feel like this is getting mature and, and really nice. Uh, yeah, I think too. I think there was a lot of confusion around Rails credentials, Rails secrets, uh, because at the time Rails secrets was introduced, we realized it wasn't really solving the problem we were in, trying to solve. Uh, and thus we decided to take a step back or Rails decided to take a step back and finally introduce Rails credential. And I, I, I still get confused between the two actually, like between en um, encryption and credentials because there is some commands in Rails where you can do like uh, bin Rails uh, encrypt edit and bin credentials edit. And yeah. it's a bit confusing, but we're moving toward uh, a standardized way of uh, encrypting credential. Absolutely. And I, I would say for, so for users, before any of this happened, I remember using a lot of .env gem. I mm -hmm. remember using a lot of Figaro <laughs> um, and then a lot of manually just setting things like in Heroku. Yeah. Um, I don't mm -hmm. know how widely this is adopted. So I would say at this point, uh, users uh, and listeners of Rails um, or listeners of the Rails podcast and users, I, I would say if you haven't had a go, because it's one of those things, once your application is set a certain way, you don't want to change it. But if you're using a new Rails application, I would really recommend having a look at Rails credentials and uh, going into the Rails guides and using it the way they recommend. Because in every single case where I have used it uh, the Rails way, um, I haven't wanted to go back, right? And it's yeah. been very, very straightforward. Credentials and your environment variables are just as core to your application as your models, your controllers, um, now with your mailboxes and your storage, you know, we're kind of bringing everything in and I'd really recommend checking out Rails credentials if you haven't used it yet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So we've, I've, we've had a good chat. We've talked about upgrades. We've talked about some of our favorite features. We'll have plenty of links in the show notes. Um, Edward, uh, is there anything else that, that I've missed at this point? I think we're good. <laughs>
<laughs> yes, we, I, I think we could do three hours on this, but, um, okay. So, uh, just for the listeners, uh, where could, uh, if they want to find out more about you and what you have to say and what's going on, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, on my GitHub profile, that's usually where, uh, I, 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 that's, I, I don't contribute much to Twitter. So if people want to shoot me an email, there, there is my information, my GitHub profile, which is github.com slash Edward dash Sheen, C-H-I-N. Awesome. Well, Edward, thank you very much for being on the program and we appreciate the conversation today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was great doing my first podcast. All right. Thank you. See you.